Good morning. I'm, uh, my name is Brad. If we don't know each other, later you will know who to write your complaints to. Brad at saturate or at uh, SomaCulverCity.com. Uh, this morning we're uh, wrapping up our series on uh, culture. Uh, we've been talking through all of these uh, things that are kind of driving, shaping uh, these key like elements or parts of our culture. Uh, and how Jesus actually makes all of them new. Uh, how the story of God, uh, from rebellion to promise to redemption, restoration, like how what God is doing in the world actually reshapes the very like, fabric of our culture. And so this week, uh, we're talking about the very religion of our country, politics. I love conversations and debates about uh, the philosophy of governing, you know, like what should we do uh, to make society flourish? I love to talk about policy, uh, love to talk about uh, this fascinating intersection of all of the things of economics, of art, of public safety, of healthcare, like all of these things is what I would call uh, philosophical conversations where really smart people disagree and debate one another on how to make society really great. Uh, but that's not politics, really. Uh, at least that's not how we engage in politics. Like, politics is not this debate among ideas. It's actually a religion driving our country. Uh, it's not a debate about governing. It's tribalism. The tribalism of hope and winning something. Or keeping something. And it's all about power. Uh, the sad reality is, uh, if I told you how I voted uh, in the last election or the elections before, some of you would like me a whole lot more. Others of you would not like me at all. And that, my friends, is what's messed up. We are so entangled in these different tribes that define us who we are, what we believe, what gets us happy or excited in these cycles, we are entangled. Politics is about power, control, and winning. The kingdoms of this world have always been about grasping for and keeping, maintaining power. And the church is often swallowed up into the frenzy of what this headline says and that headline says and who we should really be on board with and who is a good person and who is an evil, wicked person. And we're defined that by the tribe we belong to. Uh, the church being swallowed up into this frenzy uh, to the belittlement of our witness. Like what we say about Jesus is made smaller because of how we've uh, locked arms with a machine. It's to the belittlement of our focus. Instead of living by a hope and living faithfully and investing uh, in those around us, investing in the kingdom of God, instead our emotions, our finances, our drive are all wrapped up into these parties and these candidates and these people 
who may or may not care about you. And as we get wrapped up into this frenzy of politics, it creates uh, competing hopes. Uh, we, we hope someone else wins in two years. And we kind of hope in Jesus. We hope someone stays winning. And we kind of hope in Jesus. Not only do we create these competing hopes, we also uh, simultaneously create hate and worship. I know hate's a strong word. I tell my kids that all the time. But it's very true. Uh, Hate is what's born inside of you when you hope someone will go into prison without ever even like knowing them, right? Which is a very common theme in our politics for the last four plus years. Not only does it create hate, it also creates worship. Uh, I I spent last week in Washington, D.C. It's our nation's capital. It's very lovely. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Everyone from there is smart, beautiful, kind. Uh, Where the men are good looking and the women, I don't, Lake Lake Wobegon. Uh, Washington, D.C., this marvelous, beautiful city, uh, is a city of worship. Like, in the very center of the city is this towering monument to a person who was president for eight years. To, to a man who had slaves, who uh, you know, fought battles, who did wars, who did good things, who did bad things, who did all this stuff. But in the center of the city is this massive monument. And I've been all around the world, and I've seen temples all over the place. I've stood in the middle of the Basilica in Vatican City, and nothing kind of compares to the temples we've built in Washington, D.C., all around the city are these temples to these men and to these people that we, people make uh, huge pilgrimages and treks all across the world to walk and to stand in those places and to marvel at what happened there and who these people are. Like, the, uh, this is a fun anecdote. There's two big statues of Jesus in the world. One is Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. The other one is uh, Christ the King in the beautiful city of Lisbon, Portugal. If you had Abraham Lincoln step up out of his chair, he would be far bigger than both of those statues of Jesus. Our politics creates hate and worship simultaneously. And the gospel of those at the top, as Mark Twain said, is private graft. And I had to look that up, what that meant. Mark Twain, he's smart. I have no idea what he said. Private graft is this term about self-serving rewards. That politics and the gospel, the good news of the people driving towards uh, candidacy is about their own rewards. That's what drives it. That's, That's the mantra, the message. Every issue we've discussed in this series, from gender, sexuality, art, uh, evil, justice, they're all political issues. That's why this is last. And so this morning what I want us to do is uh, walk through the story of God one last time and then zero in on the last uh, morning of Jesus' life before he gets 
uh, killed on a cross. And, and in that last morning of Jesus' life, he goes through four different trials uh, before the powers and the kingdoms of the world. Uh, and I think we'll learn just exactly how Jesus compares to, to the people that we worship and the parties and the identities and the families that we so easily join. In the beginning, God ruled and reigned. In the beginning, God created, formed, gave everyone exactly what they need. They had uh, all of the, the intimacy, the relationship, all of the fruit, all of the drink, all of the water, everything they could ever need. They even had purpose and work, and God was in charge of it all. In the beginning was the power of God. He creates time and matter and all of it simultaneously with his own voice he creates. And he rules over what he creates. In rebellion, Adam and Eve clamor to be in charge themselves. To rule and to reign and to have power. Because it looks so enticing as they look to God and how he rules and reigns. And they decide, we want to do that ourselves. They, they get banished from the garden and they, they end up uh, multiplying and filling the entire world with all of these kingdoms and city-states that are a uh, bustling energy of wickedness. The Bible says that every intention of man's heart was wicked all the time. This led to uh, kings... People clamoring for kings. Give us a king to rule over us. They wanted handsome, well-spoken warriors. Some of these kings were good. Many were bad. In this time of rebellion, we see Pharaoh, who's this ruler, who who didn't just claim to be handsome and wise and well-spoken. He claimed to be the divine itself. And with that divinity that he claimed for himself, he massacred children and people for generation after generation. Many others just simply claimed divine rights to power. Whoever had power, they used it mostly for the corrupt consolidation of of more power and to abuse others underneath them. Uh, Even David, who the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart, he was anointed, he was selected, you know, it was a pretty phenomenal moment. He's the shortest, youngest, uh, most insignificant of all of them. Uh, He gets uh, oil poured on him, he's anointed the king, he does all of this wonderful, humble stuff. But at the end of his life, his hands are so stained with the blood of his enemies that he can uh, not build a temple to God. Also, he uses that power to have an affair with a woman and send her husband to the front lines to be murdered in this incredible, like, conspiracy. However, through all of this, there was this promise that one day there would be a king who would come. And that king who came would actually rule and bring peace. Like there's images of people's weapons being turned into plowshares so they'd be cultivating the earth again. Uh, like they were in the garden, instead of killing one another, uh, this king would be wise and he would be the prince of peace. He would be amazing. He would, even in his coming, swallow up death 
itself and bring about a kingdom the world had never seen before, and it would be about the blessing of all people everywhere. There's this huge mountain. All the peoples, all the tribes of the world would come and gather at it and say, this is our God. We now know who we are. That was the promise of the king. Pretty great. And then Jesus arrives. And he comes and he proclaims what he calls the gospel of God. And it was this, that the kingdom of God, that kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news about God. He said, as he arrived, not at the end, but at the very beginning, he says, the kingdom of God, that kingdom that I just described that was promised to you, that's here, that's close, that's near, you can reach out and grab it. Also, God is reaching into this world and grabbing it and bringing the kingdom. Then Jesus didn't just say those things, he went out and healed the sick, and he gave food to the hungry, he challenged the laws of the people, he drove out evil spirits, he even uh, forgave sins, he broke the Sabbath, Uh, he proclaimed a giving to the poor, a spiritual life that was based on authenticity, he described a law that was rooted in the heart that got expressed in actions, not just a law that was actions. He even rebuked the power structure's of the religious elite. If you ever want to see some really good smackdown poetry, read the woes. You just Google it. The woes to the Pharisees. W-O-E-S. Uh, it's pretty amazing what he gives. I was, it was a huge debate in my mind which passage to use for this, and that one lost. But it's pretty great. And in it, Jesus just takes the people and power to task. He rebuked the power structures. He even overthrew tables at the temple as sort of this ultimate sign that everything was changing and that he was actually in charge. He even promised to tear down the temple itself. He was establishing a kingdom like none other. And that's when the powers that existed and the politics of the day said, that's not going to work. And that's where we pick up in this story. In Luke chapter 22, verse 66. At this point, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, who was pretty mad that, God, that Jesus had uh, let someone waste money. Judas sold Jesus for some money. He was arrested, he was mocked. And then this happens in chapter 22, verse 66. After an evening of being beaten and betrayed... When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, that's the the Messiah, the king that's supposed to come, they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the first trial 
of Jesus. There's a few uh, remarkable things here. One is that uh, the chief priests and the scribes got together. Now for us, that might, we generally when we read the Gospels, we kind of just lump everyone together. Like, they're all the religious people. These two religious groups were quite different. Uh, the chief priests uh, were really all about believing that if they could be good enough, and if they could make everybody else be good enough, if they could enact their morality and the following of the laws onto other people, and if the people of Israel finally did everything that was good and right, then the kingdom of God would be there, and God would say, look at them, they're doing so good. Now I will give them the king. That's what they believed. The scribes, on the other hand, said, we've been conquered by people over and over again. God is not coming. No one is coming around. What we can do is preserve our cultural identity. All of that stuff about a promised king that was just wishful thinking by, you know, a dozen of the best prophets we ever had, but they were wrong. What we can do instead is preserve our religious activities. And to do that, we can sync up with whatever powers that might be around. Whoever's conquering us, let's, let's make some sort of bargain so that we can continue on our own religious, moral worship. These two groups did not, like, hang out a lot. They're pretty opposing views of how to enact culture. Yet with Jesus, they find uh, one of the greatest unifiers of all is a common enemy. Jesus brought unity to these two people because they wanted to see him wiped away. And in this conversation, they come to him and they say, are you the king that we've waited for? And Jesus replies, you're not waiting for a king. You don't want, you're not going to believe. If I told you I was a king, you wouldn't believe it because you do not want any other to rule. You're the ones that rule. You're in the power. If I told you, you would not believe. Earlier in the story, Jesus stands on top of the, a hill that overlooks the city, much like what we have uh, here in various parts of L.A., and he looks over and he weeps because there's a people without a shepherd at all. Here he says, you're not interested in shepherding the people to the very presence of God. If I told you I was the king, you wouldn't even believe it. And they don't challenge him on it. Do you notice that? They don't say, no, no, we would believe. No, just tell us. They say, you're right. Jesus also says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is when they get really angry. We've been keeping all the rules. We've preserved our cultural identity. We're in charge around here. And you, a poor man from this city that no one cares about, with your wise stories and your miracles, is going to tell us that you get to be in power with God. We are the people in power with God. And they ask him, are you the son of God then? And he says, you say that I am. And that's when they've had enough. See, the, the Sanhedrin, this council, 
was all based on a, on a politics of using religion to gain and keep power by controlling people, making sure people kept the rules, they would be able to maintain the power of who's in and who's out. They were well aware that Rome was going to be in charge and controlling them, but they had completely given up hope on that, but instead we're pretty focused on the fact that if we, are, if we have some sort of religious power, we can keep people in line. These people were wealthy, they had funds, and they had power. And they wanted to continue using God, using the hope of a kingdom, using this carrot hung out there to continue to corral the people to doing what they wanted. In the end, why did they want to kill him? What repulsed them about Jesus? It was his generosity with grace and forgiveness and love. If you look through the story, each time he extends forgiveness is when they get really angry. It was also his claim for authority over all life, including their laws, including their temple, including their world. It was also his inclusion where he stood and he said, people can come and be involved because of my goodness and forgiveness and love. I will make a new people. Everyone can come. And so, they take him to another ruler who can actually kill him. Uh, These scribes, these religious elites, they say, oh, we now, what, what other evidence do we need? Let's kill Jesus. Uh, Let's do this thing. But we don't actually have the power to do that or the might to do it. And so they take him to uh, the Roman authorities, Pilate. But before we do that, I think that this moment clarifies something deep about what they believe. Uh, Russell Moore, uh, he's uh, the head of the ERLC. I don't, now that I say that, I don't know what that stands for. The Ethical Liberties Commission. There it is. E-R-L, Ethical Religious Liberties Commission. There it is. He's a lobbyist uh, for uh, ethics and freedom uh, in the Capitol. But this is what he says about uh, religion and politics. He says, A religion that needs state power to enforce obedience to its beliefs is a religion that has lost confidence in the power of its deity. Those who would pretend to enforce the kingdom with tanks or guns or laws or edicts do not understand the nature of the kingdom Jesus preached. Here he's very pointedly pointing out that for these people in the council, this is the moment that you get to see right up front that they don't actually have a confidence in the power of God to bring his kingdom. Because they are all on board with Surrendering to the other powers that might be to enforce obedience, to enforce what their own will. They're willing to say, we need to make the kingdom of God, but to make it, we need the power of the Roman emperor. That's how we'll get the kingdom. So they come to, to Pilate, and I'll keep reading through Pilate and Herod because they're interwoven. 
23, verse 1, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length, and he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him with splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this day, they, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading, misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. They all cried out together, Away with this man and release us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city for murder. And for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Judas, but when they, they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent and demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. The will. The trial of Jesus before Herod and Pilate. With Herod, he was a, a guy who really wasn't a king. He didn't have this long lineage of, of uh, ruling. He wasn't like from the line of David or any of the other kings. Just someone who kind of popped up, opportunistic, created this long line. He actually... Uh, rose to power by being able to fund and finance many things. Like he built a temple for the people as they came back out of exile. Gave them a huge temple place to worship. He was a man who liked to use the money, pleasure, God's activities, the, the stuff of God to keep power. He's also the person who uh, killed many children. It's a very common theme. He's also the person that arrested John the Baptist and had him executed. One, as political entertainment. It was cool. He had a party. He had guests. Let's cut someone's head off. 
but also because John was publicly calling him out on his own sexual affairs and exploitations. So he was arrested. John the Baptist was then executed. Herod was so deeply insecure, probably because he knew he was merely a puppet king. He didn't have any real power. Any power he had was just given to him by Rome. And that he was just using his status to add to his coffers anyway. He didn't really care about people. He did all sorts of stuff to show uh, religious people that he was on their side. He would give little glimpses here and there. When the, in the trial, what Herod really wants to see is Jesus perform a trick. Like, do something fun for me. He wanted to see uh, if Jesus could entertain him. When he sees that Jesus will not perform a show for him, he mocks him, they dress him up in fancy clothes, and they send him on his way. He was fine to have him killed. What was Herod's problem with him? Again, it was that Jesus was so generous with his grace, forgiveness, and with love. He was so generous with it that it removed Herod from the equation altogether. If people believed in Jesus and put their life in him, what would they need him for? It was also Jesus' authority over all of life, including authority over his puppet kingdom and authority over his own morality. It was also that Jesus had his singular glory, that he will not share it for another. He will not use his glory as a trick, that no one else will praise him except, or no one else will be praised except for Jesus. Those are all the things that Herod valued. So Herod and and the chief priests became better friends that day. They'd already become friends as they negotiated and built their religious powers. But now they became better friends as they accused and belittled him. Nothing brings more unity than picking on a person all at once. But also, if you see here, Herod becomes good friends with Pilate too. For this, they had been estranged with one another, trying to rule the very same places. Jesus was used to form an alliance. This is politics. And then Jesus goes before Pilate, as we read. For Pilate, uh, Rome is this powerful uh, political might enforced with uh, just amazing amounts of military strength and wisdom and strategic thinking and the building of highways. And they were really uh, phenomenal. Uh, It's why the city of Washington, D.C. is kind of patterned off after the ancient Rome. In fact, Pilate is the only person in this entire story who has the real authority to kill Jesus. Any other authority that would have done it would have been merely delegated from him. Yet his deepest desire is just to maintain peace. Like, let people uh, do what they want. 
He wasn't interested in solving any problem or actually judging anything or bringing justice. It was just to sort of maintain some sort of status quo. Uh, The Pax Romana was all about uh, keeping the people that they conquered quiet and happy and content long enough to where they wouldn't realize that their ethical, cultural identity had completely faded away and that they weren't being ruled by occupiers anymore. They were just being ruled by themselves because they had become part of the Roman Empire. Herod wants to kill Jesus because it will save him a headache. It's like the, the simplicity of it with Pilate is incredible. He doesn't believe that Jesus is actually some king that's going to harm him. He doesn't believe that. That's why he tries to get him off. Uh, He tries to let him go free. He just wants to not have the headache or the people see or be frustrated or angry with him. So he will do whatever it takes for them to be happy so that he can maintain the power of Rome. Pilate decides that he's innocent, that he's done nothing wrong. There's a really amazing line in there. He's done nothing wrong, but I'm going to beat him anyway. Yes, he's done nothing wrong, but I'm going to punish him. It's a remarkable phrase. It's a great turn of language. And then what he does instead is he releases a person who's actually been charged and found guilty of stirring up the people to take down his government. He releases him in exchange for Jesus being killed. Just this uh, simplistic, middle-of-the-morning exchange of human life. Just the keeper of power, making the people happy, completely unconcerned. In the end, all three groups conspired together to put an end to Jesus and his power among the people. Because Jesus is out there proclaiming some other kingdom. And in the end, they all conspire with incredible unity and a very short amount of time get this person committed to death. But in the end, we also see that Jesus willfully goes to the cross. He lays down his power that he's demonstrated in the 21 chapters leading up to this. Remarkable power to expel demons and heal people and do whatever he wants. Walk on water, calm storms. Like the Roman powers are nothing compared to him. And yet he willfully walks carrying this cross to his own death laying down his power to powerfully redeem and restore you. Jesus isn't insecure. He's actually so confident that he surrenders his power to bring us our own freedom. He walks with shackles to his death so that we can be free from all shackles of death that we could be even raised to life. His death is the power to overcome all kinds of evil in every nook and cranny of culture 
And his resurrection is the power to make all things new in its place. He raises again on that Easter morning, and everything is different. From then on, the people of Rome and the rulers then had a very real problem with Jesus. As people walked around saying, no, this person who rose from the dead in this province you don't care about has the power to bring life. Something you could never bring. We live in a whole new world, whole new kingdom, whole new way of living that cannot be uh, shaken or shattered by any sort of political scheme that could ever take place. They proclaim the kingdom is here. His proclamation made and sealed forever as he walks in life after laying down his power completely opposite those around him. He freely gives it up. And in the time since then, Rome has risen and fallen. Yet the kingdom of God remains. Governments have come and gone. Complete theories on how to govern people has come and gone. Yet the kingdom of God remains. Political parties have been created and destroyed. Like no one's voting for the Whig party in 18 months, right? But it sounds cool. And yet, Jesus continues to reign. Presidents have served and died. There was a president who gave a speech, his inauguration, and then died of a cold. Even the, the, the presidents who we uphold with the highest esteem, we just kind of remember that they had wood in their mouth, They didn't tell lies. They read books all day. They gave a 400-word speech. The memory of these people has come and faded, yet the kingdom of God continues to grow and thrive. His promise continues and endures that the kingdom of God is so close you could touch it, grab hold of it, and it's reaching into your life, our society, every corner of it. Repent and believe that good news That is still the truth. Here's also the truth in redemption. That no one enters the kingdom of God. No one walks into the glorious light, whole, made new, restored, and redeemed through any other means than the death and life and resurrection of Jesus. No one comes into that kingdom apart from that. And that is power. That is the power to save you and restore you and make the entire world whole. No politics or vocation or sexuality or movement or art or science or any of those things will usher you into the very presence and kingdom of God. The hope of Jesus is that kind of unique, eternal, life-giving reality. He is the bedrock. He's in, he's above, he's in everything that we do through all those other arenas as he makes new our politics, our vocations, our sexuality, our morality, our art, our science. After his resurrection, he creates and establishes a church. And all of this is why I feel super displaced every time I vote. I don't know, if you, if you feel super like, Easy voting. Um, I don't know. 
kudos to you, maybe. But all these political parties, they're just pursuing power and using power, proclaiming a hope that even on its face, even at its initiation, we know is always hypocritical, self-serving. We're pro these human lives, we're anti these human lives. We're pro this war, we're anti that war. We're pro taxing you, we're pro taxing you. None of them succinct and whole. None of them quite depicting a kingdom of God where power is won through the sacrifice of Jesus. I'll just say this about the church. It too has known the corrupt senates of Rome, the Caesars, dictators, kings, tribal chiefs. It's known democracy. It's known democracy good times and bad. It's known tea parties. It's known all of this. And the church has still thrived. As we live as the church, we shouldn't cozy up so close to a political party that it becomes our identity. Who you vote for is not who you are. It's not your family. It's not your people. Don't get played. Call for truth and justice and wisdom in every situation to all the powers that you voted for or didn't vote for. Be aware, be critical, be hopeful. Use whatever rights you have as a citizen. That gets played out through the entire New Testament. Use whatever rights you have as a citizen, including voting. But vote is not your hope. I'm one of those dorks who writes letters to congressmen and stuff. Uh, They only reply with uh, opportunities to donate to them but I still do it. You can live locally as well. The greatest impact you will have on society is not what happens in a voting booth, but what happens secretly and quietly day by day as you love and include those around you. I wonder how much in the last three years we've, and how many people we fail to love and include or get to know or relate to, or see at our dinner tables because we've been so infuriated, distracted, elated, whatever it is, with what happens in politics. I also want us to understand this as we're the church. The majority of the Christian world, like, which is not in America, and the most of Christian history as well, has not lived under a government that represents it, or speaks for it, or considers it, or considers the kingdom of Jesus. Most of the Christians in the world are not living under that kind of power and influence. And yet, the kingdom of God has quietly and forcefully expanded in all of those places. Because you cannot quiet the force of God's love and grace and forgiveness and redemption, it's more powerful than whatever the people at the top are doing. But the story doesn't end with us as a church just making sure people you know, stay in line and writing letters. It ends with the kingdom fully realized. I want to end by, by reading Revelation 7, uh, verse 9. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white, and from where have they come? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, you are making all things new. You're making our world new. God, I pray for our many politicians that they would be confident in your power and not their own. I pray for a a massive revival in our country, in our city, in our state. I pray for us to be a people of light, to be your children, to be confident of your kingdom and nothing else. Help us to be wise. Help us to find our identity in you and you alone. Jesus, I pray that we would behold your kingdom and the power of your resurrection and not hope in any other temples or any other ways, but your resurrection would be our lasting, enduring hope. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.